Well, today we begin a new series that I'm calling The Marriage Rules. My wife just leaned over and said, you're not going to bash me, are you? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this series, and I'm glad you're here to, for the, the start of this, because uh, the Scriptures tell us about relationships, and the Scriptures tell us about how we ought to be in marriage and in being single. And it is important to know what God expects of us and how we are supposed to act and how are we supposed to behave in whatever relationship we are in, whether we are single or rather whether we are married. It is in the sixth and seventh chapters of the first letter to the Corinthians that we see the Apostle Paul writing about these things as he writes to this church and, and they certainly have a number of problems of things that they aren't doing right and, and difficulties and doctrines that they have mistakes in. Uh, it is a time when he spends talking about some of their questions regarding marriage. And before he gets to that, though, in chapter 7, I think it is useful to observe that in chapter 6, he is dealing with being single and dealing with the difficulties of that and how we are supposed to be before God uh, in singleness as well as in marriage. I think it is important for that understanding before you get into talking about the rules of marriage as he gives them in chapter 7 is that we enter into marriage and it is important that we look at our own sinful problems that we bring into a marriage. Uh, we really have a society and a culture and a time right now that the problems of marriage are everybody else's fault. And you have to recognize that what God has done in a beautiful way is he has taken two supremely sinful people and told them that they're supposed to now function as one before him. Uh, And it is not that there is only one person who is supremely sinful, and and I myself is not that case, as so often it wants to be looked at. But it is two people in that. And the problems that we bring into marriage in the sinful way we think, uh, it causes a lot of problems in trying to have a proper marriage before God. I think that is the reason why 1 Corinthians 9, 6, 9 through 20 sit here, is that here is this letter to the Corinthians, and it, you'll know that it's a transition point where chapter 7 begins with the Apostle Paul answering their questions. And he has chosen, after writing these problems that are in the the church there, chapter 5, he's dealing with the sexual immorality that is in the church there and how they're supposed to handle the discipline of that. And then chapter 6 moves into, here's what these sins are, and you need to know the severity of what these sins are. And chapter 7 could have began with any number of questions. He could have started talking about the problems of the Lord's Supper. He could have started talking about the idolatry problem. He could have started talking about the miraculous spiritual gifts problem. He could have been talking about the resurrection question, chapter 15. But after talking about sexual morality, he then goes right into marriage. These two things are very important. And understanding sexual immorality and understanding what life is like when you are single and what God expects of you plays a critical part to the expectations that God has in marriage and how we are supposed to live in that. 
So we're going to spend our time in the first few lessons looking at the, the chapter 6 before we get into chapter 7. And as I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm desiring your questions. If you want to write down questions from... Uh, Things from the lesson or questions you have about these topics, give them to me and I will work them into future lessons to make sure that we can we can cover them as we go through uh, this series. As was read for us, chapter six of first Corinthians, verse nine, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. We could almost spend our whole time right there and I almost want to. You are being lied to. You are being deceived. You are being sold a bag of goods about who is going to inherit the kingdom of God. The world wants to tell us that these things are okay. These behaviors that we're going to read about in these next two chapters, it's okay. It's not a big deal. It's not a problem. You can still be a Christian. You can still walk with God. You can still have a relationship with Him. And here's the Apostle Paul. Before he describes anything, he just says, You understand something, don't you? The unrighteous are not inheriting the kingdom of God. So don't believe the lie. And then he backs off and just goes, Now let me tell you what the unrighteous looks like. He's going to give this, this list right here. Because I think the first thing I want to do is, well, that's not me, right? You know, that's everybody else out there. Yeah, all those people outside this building, yeah, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, but we're all doing all great right here. Gold star for us. Uh, we're all okay. Remember that he's writing to Christians. Remember he's writing to a church. And he says, you need to understand something. How we live and act before God matters to God. It is important to know that what we do as single people and what we do with our bodies and what we do in marriage, it matters to God. And so he says, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't think that the things that we are going to read about are acceptable before God, because he says here, you cannot believe that you can do the things that are listed here and remain in a relationship with God. You notice the list as he goes, verse nine, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I was working on this, I thought, you know, there was a time where that would have been sufficient. Makes sense? Straightforward. There's all the words. Here's all the sins. This is what unrighteousness looks like. Don't do these things. Let's go on. (laughs) And I looked back over verse 9 again, and I looked at it, and I said, now we have to define every single one of those things very carefully. Because each of those things are now justified in our society and has crept into the church that these things are now okay. And so we will now talk in gory detail about all the things these things are excluding. Because it's important, because the world says, oh, it's fine. It's okay. And here's Paul saying, don't be deceived by that. Don't listen to the lie. First thing he says, sexually immoral. It is perhaps the broadest word that you can think of in terms of sexual conduct. It is an extraordinarily broad word. His usage in Greek literature encompassed all kinds of sexual behavior. All kinds were dumped into this word. This is the word that was used. That's why I think every translation just says sexual immorality. You can't hardly say something broader than that. I mean, it just, it catches everything. Uh, any kind of sexual contact 
for sexual conduct that is not between a husband and a wife. And I just, okay, great detail here. That includes everything, all touching, all contact, all acts, all everything. I mentioned to you um, and the, the Galatians study last week as a teenager, you know, you want to go, okay, what's okay, what's not okay? It's all wrong. That's the easy, easy answer right here with this word. It's all wrong. You know, is it okay? No, it's not. <laughs> Whatever you were about to fill in the blank with, it's probably not. <laughs> it's just probably not. Because that's what this word is. This word, any kind of sexual touch, act, conduct, behavior, is completely forbidden by this word. It is classified as sexual immorality. Some of the old translations use fornication. We get an idea with it as well. Same thing. And so it is important for us to recognize that God has called us to sexual purity. It is something that God says over and over again. One of my favorite things, and I say that sarcastically, is you have all kinds of people today who think they're very smart with the Scriptures and say, now it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that you can't have sexual relations before marriage, that you can't live together, you can't have sexual conduct. It doesn't say that. Yeah, it does. Right here. This is the Word. This is the word right here. It encompasses all of that. It throws all of it in the box. It is the most umbrella word that you can have in regards to sexual conduct or sexual behavior. It includes everything. It is included. And the scriptures over and over again describe this is the picture. If you're not married, then this kind of contact is condemned by God. That was held in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Now, what is interesting next is he goes to idolaters. And that's a word we like to fly right over to. That's okay. You know, that's not me, right? There's no statues in my uh, closet, so we're, we're all good. Anything that is given of a higher importance or of a greater desire than God is idolatry. Anything. That is of any higher importance, placed of a greater value or a higher desire than God is the very concept of idolatry. You get that right out of the gate when we get the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, they come out of Egyptian slavery, God's first words on the mountain. Nothing comes before me. Nothing. Nothing comes before me. Next line is the graven images, but nothing comes before me. And this is important. We start talking about marriage in chapter seven. This stands above all things. Nothing should come before God. Your relationship with God is utmost. It is primary. It is everything. And nothing is to trump that. We'll see that especially when you get to verse 15 of chapter 7. That concept comes into play. Nothing trumps your standing with God and your relationship with God. Nothing can come before Him. Not even family. Not even children. Not even spouses. Here is God saying, you shall have nothing. There's nothing before me. My desire is to be preeminently for God and for God alone. And nothing can get in the way of that. We live in a time that tries to paint spirituality and the worship of God through all kinds of other actions that are not the worship of God that God has said to do. I'm doing these things for God. No, you're not. Scriptures didn't tell you to do that for God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Serve the Lord your God. Fear Him. Obey Him. This is supposed to be supreme. 
And then what we will do is we will say things, well, you know, God's told me to be a husband, so I forsake God to be the husband. No, 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 no. Uh, No. God is always supreme. And you always must do what God has called you to do to the sacrifice and forfeit of all other things in life. And so he lays that here out here as he talks about these things. I think it is interesting that he hits idolatry because it forces us to ask a very important question. So what do we place ahead of God? What do we place ahead of God? And there are a number of things that I think we easily do place ahead of God. Things that gobble up our time and show to be idols in our lives. Things that that are just in the way of our service to God where we will put possessions or wealth or careers or family. And to me, I don't know about you, I think the new number one idol that we have today is the idol of comfort and convenience. Everything funnels through that test. If it's not something that I like, if it's not comfortable or easy or convenient, I refuse to do it. I don't care who tells me to. It just doesn't matter. If my boss tells me something to do that is not comfortable or convenient, I will not do it. And if my uh, God says to do something that is not comfortable or convenient, I will not do it. This is an idol. And we approach God this way. Well, I don't like what he has to say. Oh, well, that's you're serving another God. That's idolatry. You are saying your supreme God is that you are happy, that you are comfortable, that you are convenient. That is idolatry. Where did Jesus ever show that following him was comfortable and convenient? How did that look in the face of the 12 apostles as they walked the earth for those years? Where did that look comfortable and convenient? Where did that look easy and simple? As they stayed at all the the inns that were all over the place with with pillows and comfort and ease. And everything was so simple and easy, right? That's what made those disciples amazing, I submit to you, is how many times, like when we studied the Gospel of John, is Jesus saying, we're going to do this and I'm going to teach that, and people are leaving. That's too hard, that's too big of a sacrifice, that's too difficult, that's too much, I'm not going to do it. And people walk away. And you get precious words from Peter and the apostles when Jesus says, are you going to go too? No, you've got the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. It's that kind of attitude that has to come into these kinds of commands. When we talk about what is expected of us in marriage and what's expected of us as being single in regards to sexual immorality, the word of God must trump my comfort and my desires and my convenience. Because it is doing what I want to do and placing the idol of comfort and convenience on the top shelf is that's what's destroying marriages. As I'm only going to do what's good for me. Idolatry. What's comfortable for me, what I like, idolatry. And where did God teach us that? God never said that's the way it is. The walk with God is about sacrificing ourselves. It is about submission to Him. It is about setting aside our will. It is subjugating our desires. This is what the walk of God looks like. And this is why so many people turned away from Jesus when He put His finger on, you have to give up these things. 
You have to forsake the family. You have to forsake your wealth. You have to forsake these different things. Things that we think are very harsh. You know, let me go bury my father. No. No. As we enter into this discussion over the next few weeks about this, we need to understand the problem of idolatry and the high role that it plays in the problems of marriage and the problems of being faithful to God. Is that if we continue to believe that our comfort and our convenience is the primary, the most important thing, then we are not serving God. And we will destroy marriages because we are placing ourselves as God. Idolatry, the next thing that he lists. Number three, notice in verse 9 he continues, Neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor the adulterers. That's really come to the forefront in our culture the last few weeks, hasn't it? (laughs) What a horrible, horrible, despicable website and tagline. Life is short, have an affair. I saw a good article this morning, great headline, didn't get to read it all. Life is short, love your spouse. What a ridiculous idea. Well, life is short. Go run around like crazy. We'll define it. It's very simple. If you're having any kind of sexual conduct with somebody that's not your spouse and you're married, that's adultery. There you go. Another nice big broad umbrella. So sexual immorality is if you were single, any kind of sexual conduct is condemned. And then to the married, if you're if you're married and it's not with your spouse, it's condemned. I think the situation that we see in our society is fascinating because God was so serious about purity in marriage. He was so serious about us possessing our bodies properly and to use our bodies in holiness. He gave very serious pictures of this throughout the time of his teachings and with Israel. I think Leviticus 20 and verse 10 is really interesting. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's what God thought about that. God did not look at this and say, well, life is short, have an affair. You know, well, we're all a bunch of animals and you can't be monogamous. And who would ever think of such an... Here's what he said. So serious was it before God that even under the old law, it carried the death penalty with it. Do we understand how God views marriage? And do we understand how important it is to maintain a marriage? Maintain boundaries. Maintain the boundaries of what is proper so that adultery does not occur in a marriage. God was extremely serious about it. It was sad to read that there are over 39 million registered users of the Ashley Madison website. And I just pondered in my mind with that command, if that were still the law, if that would still be true. If we had a sense of how God looked at these things, would that still be true? And what I want us to see, and I'm going to say this a number of times this morning and a number of times over the following weeks, The gravity of sin cannot be diminished in our minds, in our hearts, and in our teachings just because the practice of it is so prevalent. 
Because when it comes to these three things that we've already started on, sexual immorality, adultery, and idolatry, that's just everywhere, and that's expected. I mean, it's just expected. I'm, I'm saddened when they will bring somebody on like the Today Show or some news program, and they will be like, these two have been together for 60 years. And, I mean, you would think we would need to construct a monument in D.C. over it because it was such an impossibility. We can't believe that you've ever done it. I mean, how is that possible? I mean, the, the, the news people just go on and on and on. This is, that is sad. And it's sad that this is the view of marriage. Now that marriage is disposable. <laughs> marriage doesn't matter. And I want you to notice the severity and seriousness of how God looks at it so that it will put into our minds, it doesn't matter that the world says that sexual immorality is okay. It doesn't matter that the world says having an affair is okay. Sexual conduct is okay. Sleeping together is okay. Pornography is okay. Inappropriate relationships are okay. It doesn't matter that the world accepts it, gives psychology behind it, or tells you that it's human body healthy for you to do it. It is condemned by God. Read verse 9 again. Do not be deceived. This is not something new. We don't have smart 21st century psychologists catching something new here. Here's Paul going, you know, 2,000 years ago we said this is a lie. (laughs) This has been going on. Everybody runs around and says this is okay. Don't believe the lie. It is sin. It is wrong. It is condemned. It is an abomination before God. And just because the world all around us says it's okay, and just because they're surprised at the sanctity of marriage and the need for purity of marriage, does not mean that we have the right to succumb to these sins. That puts the next one in there, verse 9. The ESV uses the phrase... Men who practice homosexuality. Your version may have two different words there. It just depends. Everybody's trying to get a handle on this. There are two Greek words here. And it is interesting that the Apostle Paul continues to use words to encompass everything. When it came to sexual immorality, he used a very broad word that just basically, okay, if you're not married, all that sexual conduct is wrong. And then he went to adultery. If you're married to somebody else and it's not with your spouse, then all that sexual conduct is wrong. Big umbrellas. And these two words do the same thing. These two words speak to all the sexual conduct between two people who are of the same gender. One scholar said it this way. I thought it was fairly useful. He says they, and uh, they speaks of those two Greek words. These two Greek words are correctly understood in our contemporary context when they are applied to every conceivable type of same-sex intercourse. Now... Our society's argument right now is any of the condemnations that are in the scriptures in regards to homosexuality are because they are promiscuous. But if it is a monogamous loving relationship, it's okay. And everything that you read about is a condemnation like sexual morality. Shouldn't be promiscuous, shouldn't be running around. But if it's two people who love each other, that's okay. And I want you to see that commitment has nothing to do with these Greek words. There's no regard for that whatsoever. 
This is simply two words that speak in regards to the act. In fact, the two words speak of the two individuals. The, the King James and the New American Standard uses use the word effeminate. That probably communicated the wrong idea. You can see why in just a minute why that word would be used. But often that word has been used to indicate, well, that's talking about uh, guys who maybe uh, they're very soft-spoken and don't like sports. (laughs) That's not this. It's not even close to this. That's not what this is talking about. That's not what this means. These two words are talking about the two individuals in a homosexual act, the passive and the active. That's what these two words are driving at. That's why one is called effeminate, the passive one. And then here is then homosexuals, which would be then the other male partner. Notice how it's trying to capture anything. He doesn't say unless you're married or unless you've got a loving relationship or you stay together forever. He drives at the very acts. Whoever you are, whatever action you're doing in that is condemned by God. And so go back to verse 9 again. Don't be deceived. Just as there is now, there was then. People are going to go around saying these things were okay. We live in a society, we think we're so progressive. We are so forward thinking. We're so on the edge. We're so smart. This was all going on in the Roman Empire. It was already there. All of this. And that's why Paul has to write to Corinth. Corinth was one of the pinnacle places of these problems. And that's what chapter 5 talks about it, and chapter 6 talks about it, and chapter 7 talks about it. Over and over again, Paul has to deal with, don't you know what it means to belong to Jesus? Because it's not by doing these things. And so again, I want us to consider then, I want us to think about how all of these things are equally condemned by God. And I want us to kind of get on a soapbox of us for a minute. Is that we need to make sure that we communicate that these sins that we have read in chapter 9 are all equally condemned by God. And God does not play favorites with any of that. And we should have the same fervor against all of these sexual sins. And we should be condemning sex before marriage. We should be condemning sex outside of marriage. We could be, should be condemning affairs. We should be condemning homosexuality all equally with the same fervor because God said no one who does those things will inherit the kingdom of God. We're not going to play favorites. And so often that's what we want to do. Well, those are worse than these. No, they're not. These are all sexual sins that God has completely said, don't be deceived. You're not inheriting the kingdom of God in this. To the point we just made a minute ago. The gravity of the sin must not be diminished by the fact that our world accepts it. And we have to be very careful of that. We've already accepted, you know, basically, what's the point of marriage? Just sleep around. No problems with that in our society now. And now we're in basically, well, who cares about adultery? I don't understand all the everybody not liking that website when basically we've communicated, hey, do whatever you want to do. No big deal. And then all oh, these terrible people will do it. That doesn't, that's not congruent. Uh, either these things are only for marriage or forget it. You don't get to have both. It's, a, it's very incongruent. Our society's reacted to this. Adultery, fornication, 
sexual immorality, homosexuality, are all put in the very same box before God. And what God is trying to show us is that we are all equal opportunity offenders before Him. I don't get to go point the finger at you and go, oh, well, you know, look at you about that. All the same fervor that we have against any one of these sexual sins should be taught against all of these sexual sins. And I want us to recognize if we come into marriage with an attitude that these things are permissible or these things are okay, do you see the weak foundation that begins in that marriage? If pornography is okay, if adultery is okay, if just if some improper touching, a little bit of flirting, these things are okay. Do you understand the danger that a marriage gets thrust into on the very first day? You say, I do. And if you have these ideas that these things are acceptable, you've got a big, big doom coming. Purity of marriage is what God has demanded from the very beginning. And this is what Genesis 2 was talking about, that a man would leave his father and his mother and he would be joined to his wife. And the two would become one flesh. And within that law, there was no provision of, well, what about divorce? And what about all of these things that we want to go do? The two were now one. And Jesus comes along and just simply said, what God joined together, we shouldn't be separating. This is supposed to be permanent. This is supposed to be what God designed for marriage. And it is a beautiful thing. And yet we corrupt it with these sinful things. We corrupt it with these sinful actions. We destroy it because we have put the idol of comfort, convenience, and selfishness on the top shelf and have submitted to that rather than submitting to the ways of God. The rest of them probably we don't have to talk quite as much about, although most of these have become more and more acceptable. Uh, Thieves, I think we can get away with, uh, it's not yours, don't take it. Okay. (laughs) If you don't own it, you don't have a right to take it. It doesn't matter what you think is owed to you. It doesn't matter what you think you deserve. It doesn't matter how much you think the other person doesn't deserve it. It doesn't matter how mean to you they've been in the past or they've made bad decisions or they don't like people. You don't get to take their things. There's no justification for it. Do not be deceived. Thieves are not going to inherit the kingdom of God either. Nor the greedy, he says. Are you happy with what you have or do you always have to have more? Is it always bigger? Is it always better? Is it always more? Need more? Need more? Have more? Got to have more? Or are you content in the things that God has given you at this time? Drunkards. Pretty straightforward. And I just note... It's an easy sin to commit considering the strength of alcohol today. (laughs) Very easy sin to commit. Don't get drunk. Very big warning that he gives here. Understand, drunkards aren't inheriting the kingdom of God either. So, you know, your teenager, oh, this is all okay. It's all fine, right? You go to college, it's all a big frat party. It's all okay, right? No, don't be deceived. This is not okay either. Drunkards not inheriting the kingdom of God either. Revilers. Verbally abusive people is basically what that is. I use the phrase that I saw in one of the dictionaries, railing against somebody. That's very acceptable. (laughs) Just yell at them. Rail at them. Verbally abusive at them. Slander them. Yell at them. Scream at them. 
understand, he says, those who do those things are not inheriting the kingdom of God either. Don't be deceived. We don't have a right to blow other people out. We don't have a right to vent our anger on them. We don't get a right to yell and scream at others. Think about tangent, not really, marriage. You don't have a right to rail, verbally abuse, scream. Not marriage either. Not even to each other. Not to our friends, not to our co-workers, and definitely not in marriage. Swindlers. This one's widely accepted. I mean, basically there's now the, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. And that's what this is, is basically trying to cheat somebody out of that. Well, thieves is kind of more of a direct, overt act. I'm taking what is yours. Swindler, the word sounds like what it is. You're doing it indirectly. You're trying to kind of cheat, cheat them through the back door. Isn't I just walked into your house and took your things? I'm trying to teach you out of your stuff. And so I think there's a warning here. No one who does these things, verse 10, will inherit the kingdom of God. These things are condemned. And again, just because the gravity uh, doesn't change the gravity of the sin, just because the world accepts it, just because these things are acceptable in the world to do these kinds of things and behave these ways to steal from other people, to be greedy, to get drunk on the weekends, to be verbally abusive to others, to try to cheat others. Just because everybody in the corporate world does this doesn't mean we get to do this, right? That's so kind of this picture is, I don't care that everybody else does it. That's what we want to do. Well, they're doing it to me. We don't get to do that bad. Here's the explanation why in verse 11. I love verse 11. Verse 11 begins with basically, that's who you were. That's what you used to do. And I want us to read verse 11 and recognize he doesn't say, you've never done this. And only people who have never done any of the things that you've read about in verses 9 through 10 can come to Christ. No. No, he says, you've all done that. (laughs) That, that, That's what you were. That's what you were doing. This is the life you were living. This is the problem that you had. But belonging to the Lord means something. Belonging to the Lord means you have to stop doing these things. Belonging to the Lord means that we cannot continue in this behavior. Why? Why can't we just be sexually immoral and be adulterers and be thieves and be homosexuals? Why can't we do all those things? He gives a great picture here because notice he is describing you have a new identity. That's who you were, but that's not who you are now. Such were some of you, but now God has done something. God has accomplished something that is going to change your identity. It changes who you are. It changes your life. That's the picture that he's giving here. That's who you were. I want to just make a point. How sad it is. How sad it is. That we try to find our identity in sinful and even non-sinful behaviors. This, this should be heartbreaking 
And to me, it rips my heart at watching our society now. That who you are is your sexual identity. That's who you are. That's shallow and sad. Who you are is your career. That is shallow and sad. Who you are is how much money you make. That is shallow and sad. Who you are is how much power you have. How high up the ladder you are. That is shallow and sad. That's who you are. That's who you are. Notice God is walking into this and saying, that's not who you are. You're not defined by your job. You're not defined by being sexually immoral. You're not defined by how much money you make. Notice what he comes in here and says here in verse 11. But such were some of you, but you were washed. This is great. God just comes in and says, that's the way you used to think. But God has washed you clean. I don't know that there's a a better picture that I enjoy in the New Testament of how God always describes sins being washed away. That sins are like filth that is stuck to you. All the sins that you've committed weighing you down with all of these burdens and you are just kind of blood red in sins. And God says, you were washed You used to be that. You used to do that. That used to be your behavior. That used to be your identity. That used to be how you thought of yourself. But you know what? God came in and you're washed. That changes who you are. You were sanctified. We don't use that word. Which means you were made holy. We don't use that word either. But the picture is you've been set apart and given a new nature for holy living. You've been set apart to be able to be in service of your God. You were sexually immoral. You were an idolater. You were an adulterer. You were practicing homosexuality. You were a thief. You were greedy. You were a drunkard. You were a reviler. You were a swindler. But you were washed changes everything you were made holy you were set apart and put into God's service to belong to him to be a child of his and then the third one is beautiful as well you were washed you were sanctified and you were justified as amazing as washed is And as amazing as sanctified is that you've now been put into service before God and can now be His servant, who an instrument that He can use, the idea of justified, you have a whole new standing before God. You are an adulterer, an idolater, a sexually immoral person, practicing homosexuality, a thief, a swindler, a liar, greedy. But before God, you're counted not guilty. Justified. That's supposed to change everything. That's the picture that's being given to us. Condemned sinners are coming to Jesus and they are being radically changed because he cleanses them, sets them apart for the service of God and declares them no longer guilty of their sins. 
And it is seeing Jesus saving us from our sins and saving us from this false identity and this false way of life that he's telling us. Now, why would you want to go back to those empty things? You were finding lasting, longing, true, satisfying fulfillment in being those things, weren't you? No, you weren't, be honest. That's why you kept doing them. That's why you kept behaving that way. Is the lie of Satan, the belief that we would be told to our heart is, if you will keep doing it, this time it will be more satisfying. Pornography, just keep looking at it. You need you just didn't do it right. You need to look at more and more and more of it. It becomes addictive. You can't stop. Sexually immoral. You, know, you just gotta find the right person. You're just sleeping around, but if you found the right person, you kept doing that, you would satisfy that desire, you'd be happy. Adultery, oh you're in a terrible marriage. Go find somebody who's gonna make you happy. All of these things. Steal from somebody, that's gonna make you happy. Greedy, that's what's gonna make you happy. And so we keep doing it. We commit the sin. Same outcome. Same emptiness. We try again, do it again. And God is saying, do you recognize the futility of the pursuit? Do you see what God has called you to? You have a new identity. You have been called to a new life. You belong to Christ now. That becomes your identity and that changes everything. That changes who we are. It changes how we think that I don't have to look at these sins and try to find my identity in them. I don't look at these sins and think I have to find lasting joy and pleasure in them. I recognize my satisfaction, my identity, my joy is found in Christ alone. So don't be deceived because continuing in those former ways continues to keep you separated from God. God has rescued you. He has washed you. He has made you holy and he has justified you. He's pronounced you not guilty. You have been given a fresh, clean, new start before God. Don't go back into those things. That was emptiness. That was loss that was a lack of joy and satisfaction don't go back there God has done something amazing where he has taken sinners like us and has now said you can be a child of mine you can be holy in my sight you can be clean you can be washed you can be justified and perhaps not guilty before God Friends, the old life is supposed to stop with Christ. The old life is supposed to stop with Christ. The way of the world is supposed to stop with Christ. If you've been practicing the things that we've read about here in verses 9 and 10, can I encourage you today to admit the sinfulness of it? God says, don't be deceived. You're not inheriting the kingdom of God if you continue this way. But here's the good news. God can wash you. God can make you holy. And God can pronounce you not guilty. It's not that it's too late. Now is the time to come to Christ. Now these things can be set aside and God will give you a new identity as a child of God. A whole new path to go. And it will change everything. It will change your desires. It will change who you are. It will change your whole way of life. 
if you will submit to Jesus with all of your heart. I look forward to this series with you. I hope you'll keep coming back. You pull your song books out. We're singing an invitation song. We're inviting you to come to Jesus this very morning to decide today to turn away from your sins, to turn away from the old life, that old identity, and find your life and identity in Jesus alone. Will you come to him today? Confess Jesus to be the Son of God and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be clean in his sight and justified before him. Will you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?